turn there, if you will, this morning. We're in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. A uh, familiar uh, passage of Scripture to any Christian who has been a Christian for a while and has uh, read uh, the Gospel of Matthew uh, more than once. We're quite well aware of the content of the verses uh, that I'm about to uh, exposit here. Matthew 16. Would you zero your attention in on verse 13? That's where we began our study this morning. Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 13. Father in heaven, we implore you uh, to be our instructor this morning. We need the illumination that comes from the spirit of the living God to the saints. God, everything that is done now in these few moments as we explore and exposit your word, may you be glorified. May Christ be magnified, and may your people be edified. These things we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus the Lord, the Christ. Amen. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I'm using the subject, as you know, who is Jesus Christ? The ultimate Q&A is given by Jesus here. He gives it to his disciples. In fact, it is the supreme Q&A because it addresses the identity of the questioner. A person can have a wrong answer to many questions in life, and there may or may not be serious consequences. However, that is not the case in the question of who is Jesus Christ. The wrong answer means eternal judgment. The right answer means eternal salvation. But many have responded wrongly to the query of who Jesus truly is. And they have influenced many to do as they've done. They've influenced many to a false, damning view of the person of Jesus Christ. I offer this morning an example of a man perhaps you've not heard of, but I've heard of him uh, quite often in my life. His name is Howard Thurman. He's an author, or was, he's deceased, an educator, philosopher, Baptist minister, and civil rights leader. He wrote this about Jesus, quote, Jesus was an ordinary man with a profound religious experience. An ordinary man? Thurman, in fact, denied the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Others have followed in that vein, and they see Jesus as merely a liberator of the socially oppressed. Islam is considered one of the world's great religions by many, and I suppose they do that because of its many, many adherents. Actually, it is a great deception. Islam teaches that Jesus was a 
listen to this, good man, a moral teacher, only a prophet, and a social visionary. Great author, Christian C.S. Lewis, refuted these devaluing and faulty views of Jesus Christ. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis, and perhaps you've heard of him, he penned these words, quote, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I am ready to accept Jesus as a good moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. End of quote. C.S. Lewis was right and is right. The choice is clear. Jesus is either God or he is not. The passage before us reveals the truth of who he is. It tells us the reality of his identity. And that truth is given by divine revelation. And you'll notice the place of revelation. Verse 13, Caesarea Philippi is located 25 miles northeast of Galilee at the foot of Mount Hermon. It was given to Herod the Great the Herod who was in power when our Lord was born. And this was given, this area, this district, to him by Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor. Herod's son, Philip the Tetrarch, named it after Caesar. And he added the name Philippi to honor himself. Now, you need to know this about this area, Caesarea Philippi. It was a center of the worship of the Greek god Pan, P-A-N. You remember Pan, a half-goat, half-man idol, a grotesque figure, and he is playing a flute. The town at one time was named Panaeus, after the mythological Greek god Pan. You say, why would Jesus go to that place? He went there to get away from the crowds, and the critics in Galilee, and the hostilities of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And more important, he could take time to spend with his disciples, instructing them and training them. And this was vital. At this juncture, he was about a year away from his death on the cross and his resurrection and his return uh, to heaven. So the time with the twelve was essential as he continued to pour into them the truth that they needed to know as he was developing them so when he is gone, their ministry would go on and flourish in the power of the Spirit as he would build his church. 
Now you notice, he asked the question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Before our Lord asked that question of his disciples, he had spent time in prayer alone with his Father, according to Luke chapter 9, verse 18. Jesus asked this question after prayer. He asked them, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now he was referring to the common people, not the religious leaders. And Jesus, you'll notice, referred to himself as the Son of Man. It's a title recognized by the Jews as a messianic title. Daniel 7, 13, keep that in mind. Uh, that's where it came from, the idea concept, the reality. And indeed, it is a messianic title. But the Jews preferred not to use it because it conveyed humanness, the idea of son of man. But Jesus preferred it for himself. And you'll notice in the Gospels, he's always referring to himself as the son of man. It's inescapable. You can't read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and not see him refer to himself as the son of man. Now, why would Jesus use that title for himself, son of man. It was to focus attention on his humiliation and submission of his first coming. His work of sacrificial, substitutionary atonement on the cross. That's why. And so at that place, Caesarea Philippi, a place where there's pagan idolatry, Jesus asked his men, who do people say that the son of man is? It's the place of Revelation. It's where they're located. That's where the answer will come. And then the answer from the disciples, the people without Revelation, he speaks about them. Verse 14. Some say John the Baptist. You'll notice the, uh, their assessment of who Jesus is, the identity of his, varied and but yet complementary but utterly wrong and, of course, wholly inadequate. Some say John the Baptist. Herod is one who said that Herod Antipas, who murdered John the Baptist, and he was afraid, and he said, oh, John the Baptist is this Jesus who's risen from the dead. Others said, oh, you're Elijah, the great Old Testament prophet. They thought, many of the people thought, that Jesus was Elijah, the forerunner of the Messiah. Get this, still to come. Others Jeremiah. And they thought he might be in Jeremiah because, after all, there was a likeness between Jesus and Jeremiah. Jesus had authority like Jeremiah. There was lamenting by Jesus like Jeremiah, and there was suffering as well. So he said, this must be Jeremiah. And then, lastly, one of the prophets. One of the prophets. Risen again according to Luke chapter 9, 19. Well, we got them out of the way. The people who did not know who Jesus is. Just like people today in false religion, just like people today who claim to be followers of Christ but really do not know who he is. Like those people that I talked about earlier in this message, they don't know who he really is. It's critical to know who he is. In verse 15, the Lord says here, but who do you 
say that I am. You need to know why I emphasize you. Because in the Greek text, Jesus did. It's emphatic. It was imperative that they knew his identity. They needed to know who the Lord is, as well as you. Who do you say that I am? In contrast to the people, in contrast to people who are non-Christians, who do you say that I am? That's critical. Now we're going to look at the recipient of Revelation. Jesus laid it out. Verse 16, Simon Peter answered. First line, you are the Christ. Christ, the Christ. The Greek Christos is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew term Messiah. The Hebrew word translated into English as Messiah is Mashiach. Mashiach means anointed one. It was a royal title used in the Old Testament to refer to divinely appointed kings of Israel. And Mashiach, or Messiah, later came to refer specifically to the great eschatological deliverer and ruler eagerly, eagerly anticipated by the Jews. The Jews have been looking for Mashiach to come. They're looking for him to come now. Though he has already come. They don't believe that Jesus, the Christ, Jesus, Mashiach, is the Mashiach that we know that the Bible says he is. But he has come. And here is the confession from Peter. You are the Christ. He tells that to Jesus. Notice he said, you are the Christ. No ambiguity here. It's quite clear. You are the Christ. You are the Mashiach. You are the anointed one. The anointed one of God. We're not looking for him to come because you're here in our midst. You are the deliverer. You are the ruler. Hmm. Peter is on target. Today, you may hear Jewish Christians and even other believers refer to the Lord this way. Here, listen to how they, they may say it. Yeshua HaMashiach. You'll hear that. Yeshua HaMashiach. You know what they're saying? Jesus, the Messiah. That's who he is. And that's what Peter is saying to him. The next line is here. The son of the living God. Hmm. The son of the living God. We need to understand this. The term son reflects the idea of oneness, our essence with God. Because a son is one in nature with his father. That's a reality. Such text Elsewhere, uh, there are texts that teach us this. And Jews even understood this in John chapter 5. You may look there, if you like, with me. 
John chapter 5, you can see this equation between Jesus and the Father from Jesus' own words. And you'll see the response of those who are his enemies. John chapter 5, verse 17. There's a Sabbath controversy, but it's an opportunity for Jesus to highlight the reality of his relationship to the Father in terms of essence. And we'll see this here in John chapter 5, verse 17. Let's begin there in verse 18. Are you, have you found that place? You know, they were saying, why are you doing these things on the Sabbath? And if you've been with us and you know, you read the Gospels, you know that the Son of Man, there is that phrase again, is the Lord of the Sabbath. But here there's a different angle that Jesus comes to it with, and he says this, verse 17, but he answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. Whoa. Verse 18, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, that is, Sabbath revelations by the rabbis, not the law of the word of God, but was also calling God, get this, his own what? Making himself equal with God. Show not. He is equal with God. It's the reality. They got that right. <laughs> they didn't believe it, but they got it right. Their Christology was correct, but their hearts were still wrong toward him. John chapter 10 is another case. Case. Essence and purpose both declared here. John chapter 10. Verse 30. I and the Father are one. The one there in the Greek is neuter. It means one thing, not one person. That's important to know that. Can't confuse. Not saying I and the Father are the same person. He says we're one thing. It's the idea. They share, in essence, they share a purpose. They're not the same person. And notice verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Again, would you look with me in another spot? Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. This is a profound passage Hebrews delineation of who the Savior is in relation to God the Father Hebrews 1 here we see these glorious words verse 1 of Hebrews 1 God after he spoke long ago to the prophets in, the, in, in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the world. And he is, this is our focus, he is the radiance of his glory, the outshining of his glory, and the exact representation of his nature. 
as a human being on this earth, God incarnate was exact representation of the nature or the essence of Almighty God. And upholds all things by the word of his power. I really love this particular part of this verse. I love it all, but particularly because the idea is that everything is going forward. The world is moving toward its predetermined destiny by the word of his power. You know why your car, when you walk out of here and get in it and go down the street, the wheels just don't fly off? Because Jesus, is, by the word of his power, is keeping them together. That's why the road is out there. That's why that pew you're sitting in is holding you up. That's why things function in the physical world, physiologically in our bodies, in the physical world, in the cosmos, and all these things. You know why? Because he's upholding all things by the word of his power. Jesus. He's the one doing that. It's not surprising. After all, he is the creator, right? Amen. He's keeping it together. That's our Lord. The son of the living God. Shares the essence of deity with the Father. Let me tell you something. This, this is uh, just not truth taught in the New Testament. This is a truth that is uh, propounded in the Old Testament as well. We hear it every Christmas. We, uh, we have it on Christmas cards. And perhaps we'll sing it in a Christmas carol. And you can really overlook the import of the words. And when I begin to read them to you, you can say, ah, yes, yes. Hopefully this Christmas you'll think about them differently. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Are y'all going to turn over there? Goodness sakes. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Okay, I'll go there too. It's just a case when I'll let y'all lead me because uh, this is the right way to go, right? Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, let me just unpack this a little bit. Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born to us. A son <laughs> will be given to us. Did you get that? A child is a son. He's just not talking about this child's gender. It's more to it than that. That would be a simplification of the reading of the text to assume always just a, a male child is going to be born like a lot of male children that have been born prior to subsequent to this verse. No, it's not that at all. This is a prophecy about the coming Messiah. He's unique. It's different because he has some names that set him apart from the run-of-the-mill children that are born every day in the world. First, look at this. It says, and the government will rest on his shoulders. I don't have time to explain it, but let me just throw one thing out. One day, it, all the governments of the world will be one government, and he will be the one shouldering it, as it were. He'll hold it up. He will be carrying it forward. 
Now, you notice again, born to us, a son will be given, okay? He is going to be an extraordinary individual because the government's going to rest upon his shoulders? Well, that's not all. Look at his names. You know what them. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor, Exceptional Counselor. The Spirit of God will be on him and the counsel he'll give to human beings when they come. Countries will come. Leaders will come and they will come for counsel from him and he will give this exceptional counsel because it's supernatural counsel. By the way, you ought to go to him for counsel now. Because Jesus, when he's here doing that, he can do it for you now through his word and prayer. Go to him and get the counsel you need. It's exceptional counsel. Don't look to your friends who don't know him. Don't look to your friends who don't know the word. Look to Jesus. Too many people are asking other folk about their problems when they need to first go to Jesus. Get some counsel from him. Amen. He's a wonderful counselor. You'll never meet a better counselor than him. You say, well, I, I, I need something to help me with my psychological problem. Your problem is you need to go with the one who created your psyche. He'll fix you. Okay. I didn't intend to go there, but <laughs> I, I did. That's not all. He's going to be called mighty. This is what I was aiming at, mighty God. This is a child who's coming into the world, prophesied then, who is going to be mighty God. Mighty God. This son is God. Someone says, well, eternal father? I thought the father is a person and the son is distinct from him. You're right. You're theologically accurate. You're orthodox. Eternal father. It means this, that he will be a father to his children, us, throughout all eternity. Wow. Uh, we really can't wrap our minds around that reality. That throughout all eternity, the Lord Jesus Christ will be like a father to us. Eternal Father. Prince of Peace. His government won't end. So what I want to point out here, and y'all forced me to go to this passage and <laughs> got me saying stuff that I hadn't intended to say. He's the mighty God. That's who he is. This, this is what C.S. Lewis was saying. Don't come to me with this nonsense while well, he's a great moral teacher. He's more than that. He wasn't a morality instructor. He's the living God. That's what we're told. Now, back in our text. Back in our text. Matthew 16. Remember, Peter said, the son of the living God. Why, why would Peter say this, living God? Why the adjective living in front of the noun God? Pay attention when you read the Bible. Yeah, that, that, that adjective is there for a reason. 
modifying that noun, there's reason we need to pay attention when we read the Bible. Because living sets God apart from all the lifeless idols that were abounding in the ancient world. All the people who were non-Jewish, all of them had idols. They were dumb idols. They couldn't see, they couldn't speak, they couldn't do anything. They had no life. But here is our God who is the living God. And so Peter says, you are the son of the God, no, the living God, the God who is in contrast to all the non-entities that think they are God and their people worship them and they are not gods. Lifeless. Moreover, this idea of living, the living God keeps us in mind. He is the one who has life in himself. He didn't get it from anywhere else or anyone else. He has life in himself. People say, where did life come from? You hear that all the time in the world, don't you? They're, you know, we're spending money to send folk out in space because they all get excited when some um, satellite brings photos back from some distant planet or star. And they're, oh, we're going to find out where life began. I'm thinking, y'all are nuts. <laughs> Give me the money and I'll tell you for free. Well, you know. <laughs> we know where life came from. You don't have to go back trying to find when the universe started. I know when to start. In the beginning, God created. There it is right there. He had to tell us because we could never find out on our own. Where did life come from? Where did it begin? I'll tell you where it began. It has always existed because God is eternal. He has life in himself. And the good thing about that is he can impart that life to others. He imparted it to us. That's why we're breathing this morning. That's why you got up this morning, clothed in your right mind, had your mind focused on Jesus because he gave you life. He sustained you. But not only that, you worship him because he's given you eternal life if you're a child of God. That's why he says, the living God. There's only one, <laughs> Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, he's made his confession. In those words, Peter just answered Jesus' question. This is who you are. And our Lord responds. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Let's stop there. Blessed are you. Makarios is the word blesses, a beatitude. You recall beatitudes here in Matthew? <laughs> people, uh, I, I was messing with somebody the other day because you know people are always talking about I'm blessed and highly favored. <laughs> and so I don't remember who I was, I was having fun and they asked me how I was doing. I said, oh, I'm blessed and highly favored. <laughs> Did you not know that as a child of God you are favored by God because you know the truth of who Christ is. That's being favored. That's being blessed. Because you know the truth of who Christ is. 
You could be like those people in verse 14 who didn't know they were guessing. They didn't know who Jesus is. Or you could be like Peter who knows who he is. And the reason you know who he is is because you're blessed. Blessed, favored by God. We know the identity of Jesus. Now, before you begin to think, I, uh, I did a little reflection, and I cogitated, cogitated, and I ruminated, and I came up with the answer, who Jesus is. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. You know who he is. Verse 17. As he said to Simon, son of Jonah, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Flesh and blood is a Hebrew idiom referring to human beings. Jesus saying, human beings didn't reveal this to you. You didn't reveal it to yourself. You couldn't attain this knowledge on your own. And no one outside of the Trinity gave it to you. By the way, you know, there are some people who can read this text and say, okay, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's what the Bible, okay, I might believe that. But their heart conviction is not there. You know, talk about that a little later. Jesus says it clearly, but my Father, who is in heaven, he did it. Peter and the rest of the disciples, with the exception of Judas, is carried, of course, believed on Jesus because the Father drew them to himself. John 6, 44. No man can come to me except the Father draws him. The saving drawing, the saving call to salvation in Christ is a work of God. He not only does that, he teaches. He teaches those whom he draws. He is, it's a teaching ministry of the Father, John 6, 45. So people believe. That's why you believed. There was this lady I was sharing the gospel with um, in my driveway a few months ago, a neighbor whom I had never met, knew who she was. Uh, they lived kind of around the corner from, from us. But she happened to be uh, walking with her kids one day as I came home. I think I've told you this story before, perhaps uh, elsewhere I've told it. And I go into my driveway and a garage, and I had some stuff that I was going to put in. It wasn't much, so I was holding it there. And uh, I saw her and her kids, and I said, well, I'm just going to leave the garage up. Because I had an opportunity. I'm going to share the gospel with this woman. She had the audacity to walk in front of my house. <laughs> so you're going to hear from Jesus today, lady. <laughs> Her son was selling something. And I'm going to talk to this lady. And as a uh, conversation prior process, progress, the one of the things she said to me about the things of the Bible is what they told you. I said, no, 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 no. It wasn't what somebody told me. God did. That's why, the reason I know the word of God is the word of God 
because God has made it clear to me that it is the word of God. I'm going to tell you something. I believe that the Bible was the word of God long before I ever heard any arguments and apologetics for the word of God. I knew it. This is the word of God. Every Christian knows that. He teaches us the word of God, and he teaches us not only about the written word, but the living word, the logos, who he is, what we believe. And he alone can reveal the son to us. We saw this earlier as we were working our way through Matthew. Matthew chapter 11, you can look there in the text, Matthew 11, verse 27. It's a refresher. You hear the living word of God. All things. Have you all gotten there? Just left a few verses, pages. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and to whom the Son wills to reveal him. The Son fills the Father. The Father knows the Son and reveals the Son. That's why we know. That's why Peter knew. And Jesus said, but my father, who is in heaven? That's how you know. In fact, all genuine Christians concur with Peter. We, we hold this conviction by faith. God has told us, and we take God at his word. We know who Jesus is, and we know what he did for us. We, because of our, the truth of the, what the Father has taught us, God himself has told us who his Son is. We believe it. We hold deeply to this conviction. We stand within Christological orthodoxy. And only people who have been born again do. But not only that, we're just not orthodox in our minds. It's just not an intellectual matter with us. It's more than that. When you come to the truth of who Jesus Christ is, it does something. C.S. Lewis said that, and he's sure, he said, we ought to fall down at his feet and worship him. And that's what we do. You see, our Christology, when it's correct, when we really understand it, it'll lead to doxology. We'll praise him. We'll worship him. We'll fall at his feet and glorify him. We know he is the Messiah. We know he is anointed one from God who, who has come. And he is not coming the first time. He's already come and he's delivered us from our sins by his work on the cross. He's our deliverer. So as Christians, we know who he is. And even at Christmas... When they sing the Christmas carols, and some of them in the secular world can sing them beautifully, because they have voices, they can carry a tune, and they can sing. In fact, I heard a television program not long ago, an old rerun, where these characters were singing, "Hark the Herald Angels Sing," beautifully done. But it was all a television program. They had no idea who they were singing about. 
We do. Because we're privileged people. God has revealed to us who Jesus Christ is. So somebody ask us the question. We can tell them who he is. Because we've been blessed by God to know the truth about Christ. Saving truth about Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your, your gracious work in our life. For uh, it is by grace that we are saved through faith. We didn't attain any of this on our own. Couldn't have. But you have blessed us and we bless your name for blessing us with this spiritual blessing and all spiritual blessings in the heavenly realm. And may we live increasingly for your glory and praise. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. See two people.